Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come together to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through it. Show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12. This is one of these uh, chapters where it is sad to have chapter breaks because this is a continuation of chapter 11. <laughs> so it doesn't really fit in there, but it is does fit. Chapter 11 had this long list of heroes of, Christ, of, of, the, of God. Uh, and we start out at verse 1 of chapter 12 saying, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about so with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy which was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto you as unto children. My son, despise not you the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son in whom he, whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is, is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastening, then you, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, you are the, we, have, we have fathers in our flesh which corrected us, and we gave to them reverence. Shall we, not much, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I don't even think I'm going to get that far. So this, this verse starts out, this chapter starts out, wherefore, and in the Hebrew it literally is therefore, and so we need to be saying it's a continuation of the previous argument, the previous argument has been, look at all these people that have walked with God in faith and showing how they went through trials and tribulation. And this is something that is very important for us to understand is when we suffer tribulation, we are in good company. Purely and simple. Now, there is not a single major character in many minor characters in the Bible that did not suffer tribulation. If there's enough of their story to tell us what good they did, we see the trials that they had to get to the good that they did. And this is where he's continuing. He goes, I've given you all these people. Now let's look at your side of this, this, this process. And it says, seeing that we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, this is a very interesting one because there are people who take this verse and believe that in heaven people are on these grandstands watching us on earth. That is not what it says. All right. Witnesses here is the legal term of a witness going before the court. And that goes back to chapter 11. Look at Noah who suffered and built the ark and was sent to, uh, and rescued. Look at Abraham who was called to you know, sacrifice Isaac and all the people. that he, These witnesses who have gone before you to give their testimony of what has happened. And he goes, there's a great cloud of them. And he just listed off a few. You're talking the literal prophet, not the people that have seen them? Well, no, he's talking about the people that, that it basically he's going back to chapter seven, 11. Uh, Noah, Abel, Abraham, everybody that he said, these people have all suffered. There's this great cloud of witnesses, and then he's going to keep building this argument that when you suffer... You're in good company because these witnesses have already given their witness to it. So this is what I'm saying. He's talking about the legal idea of a witness. I'm called into the court to tell what I know about what was going on. So, but many people have taken this and going, well, there's this great big grandstand in, in heaven and they're watching earth and what's going on on earth. What a sad way heaven would be if you're sitting there watching what's going, the misery going on on earth and watching your, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids screwing up life. <laughs> now, that would be a wonderful event to have in heaven. In heaven. Um, but no, he's literally here, these people who have given their witness, this is what they have gone through because there is such a great cloud and he just picks out a handful of them and then he, at the end of there goes, and 
you know, what else can I tell you? I could tell you about. And he, then he rattles off about eight other people that he, that he could have been spending time telling us about. Uh, you know, and in our day and age, we could, we could include Paul and Barnabas and, and uh, Stephen and all these people in, in, that, in that cloud. We could also go back into all these different biographies we read of the great Christian missionaries. And, and all of them went through how much trouble they had to get to where they are famous for. And this is something we want to be aware of. If you want to be well known in the kingdom of God, you are going to suffer. <laughs> you are going to be tested. You are going to be tried to get to where you are. And the longer you walk with God, the closer you draw to him and the better off things are. <laughs> and people who get to know you at the end of your life go, wow, you have it so easy. You have everything is so wonderful. And they go, yeah, well, you know, just like we were talking the other day, you know, somebody commented that, you know, well, I don't think the way you do. And I go, yeah, it took me 51 years to get here. <laughs> All right, uh, and this is very true. The longer we walk with God, the closer we draw to him and the better responses we have that are more righteous, more honorable to him, hopefully. <laughs> but it takes time to get there with many years and uh, wrong decisions and wrong activities to get there. And this is what he was showing on the previous chapters. Look at this person. Look at what they did. And this is where they came to. And we look at somebody like David. And David's a great example when people feel they can't be forgiven. David was a murderer, an adulterer, terrible father, you know, great military leader. And God says he's a man after my heart. And he got used and it was praised by God even though he had many failures in his life. And so this is how God looks at us. And this is why it's very important for us to look at this kind of list and say, especially when we get back in, and this is why it took so long because we're going into their stories. Where did they fail? Where did they go right? And reminding people of their stories because it's important for us to understand that when we fail, God doesn't throw us away. And there are so many people that feel like, well, I messed up, I can't be used by God. You don't understand the grace and mercy of God if that's your attitude. God uses us in spite of our mis mistakes. And we're told to abide in Christ. And I was listening to somebody yesterday or today, and he was talking about the idea of abiding in Christ. What does the vine do to abide into the main plant, to the main, main root of the plant? Just sits there. Just sits there. Gets its nutrition, gets its strength from the roots of the plant. And it's not going, well, I've got to stay connected. Got to stay connected today. You know, can't go off and do my own thing. I've got to stay connected. Our goal with God is that we stay connected with him. Not that we do it. We are just engrafted into him and we get to stay there. The plant has no choice in what it's grafted into. Once it's grafted in, it's there. We are engrafted into Christ and we get to just stay there. Like the, olive. the olive tree, the, you know, just about anything that you, you have out there. We are put into him and we just stay there. And so he's saying here, there's a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, these are sports analogies that he's using at this point. Uh, if you've ever been in sports, a lot of times when you're training in a sport, uh, if you're training for running, you might run with weights to get yourself used to it. Uh, remember when we would play softball and baseball, they would be these big things, fans on there that when you swung the bat or, or you'd swing two or three bats for pract you know, practice, but when you went up to go bat, you took off the, the little fan thing, you, took off, you, know, you just went up with one bat, but you practiced with things that drew more energy, more strength. Uh, and this is what he's saying. Let us cast aside every weight and sin that does be so easily beset us. And basically saying, okay, get over all this other stuff. Get rid of it. You're in a race now. You're in the race. You're in the activity. You're in the sporting event. Get rid of the training material. And in this case, we're stretching that stretch, <laughs> stretch because our sin is not a training material. But what he's saying is there's so many things that are going to draw you away from being good at what you're doing. Uh, and so this is something that's very important. We look at our sins and we get rid of them in our life. We let God get rid of them. And the problem that we have is how often do we excuse our sins? <laughs> well, you know, God, I'm just weak. <laughs> I'll never get over this. I'm just weak. 
well, you know, I'm just human. And we need to be very careful about justifying our failures. David, after he got rebuked by the prophet, <laughs> repented of his sin. But before, for he had a year to two years where he was rejecting that repentance. He was thinking, I got away with it. I didn't get charged with adultery. I didn't get charged with his murder. I got away with it. Nobody knows about it. The problem was he knew about it. He had a guilty conscience. And even more important, God knew about it. And God gave him enough time to repent, and then he sent Nathan to him to say, uh, God knows what you've done, and now I know what you've done. <laughs> you know, and then David repented and turned, turned away from his sin. And this is very important. Do we get rid of our sins and, and say, God, I'm just going to follow you. I want to follow you with all my strength and heart. And then we let him get rid of the sin because we're not going to get rid of it ultimately. We turn it over to God and say, God, I repent. Help me to get over the sin. Because if you have, a, especially if you have a besetting sin, a sin that has been with you for a long time, it's hard to get rid of. It's part of who you are in some cases. And there are sins that, that come in from generational sins. Uh, in my family, alcoholism and pornography has been a big problem with generation after generation. And it's hard to get rid of some of those, those, those activities when they come back to you and say, time to get rid of these sins. And you know, we need to be able to say, God, I need your help to get rid of this. And every one of us has something in our life that we have trouble with. It's going to be different for every single person, but all of us have something in our life that is hard to get rid of. And that is why we turn it over to God and say, God, I recognize that this is wrong. I want to get rid of it. And one of my problems has been gluttony. I like to eat. <laughs> you know, and I like to eat more than I'm supposed to eat. You know, and so that's been one of my problems over the years, and God has worked on it. So for some people, it's just being lazy. Now, and laziness is quite a sin because it is easy to justify, God, I'm just so tired. I stayed up all night watching the movie and now I'm so tired I can't do anything. Well, that's exactly what, it, that's what he was talking about. People get so lazy. You know, well, I heard there's a lion out in the street so I'm not going to go outside to take a chance. Yeah. There's a cloud out there. It might rain. I'm not going anywhere. I live in the desert. It doesn't, it doesn't rain. It only rains four times a year, but there's a cloud out there. and it might, today, today might be the day, so I'm not going anywhere. You know, and, we're, and we're joking a little bit, but it does get that bad sometimes for people. You know, what is it that besets us? Lay it aside, he's saying. Well, in a race, get rid of the sins that keep you from serving God. And this is an important step that it is. And then he says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. God has a road for us to follow. Now, if you've ever been in a race, especially like cross country, you know, it's easy to run track. You go around the track. There's, there's no, 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 no way to miss your trail. All right. When you're running cross country, it's a little easier to miss your trail, especially in some of the boondock racing that you do. Uh, and that's why they put people wherever the major curves are to go that way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and even in some of the city races, you know, you're going down streets and across streets and, and everything. And, you know, and there's a race that's set before us, a path that God has set before us. And he's saying, go that way, go this way. And if you run the path that he's giving you, you're, you're on the course. Uh, if you're in a, on a track and field, nobody runs the mile race by cutting across the center of the, center of the field. Not if they're going to win anyway, because <laughs> they look at them and say, no, you're disqualified, you didn't stay on the track. And basically this is what Paul is saying here. Stay on the course so that you will run the right path and be able to come out a winner. And this is something that is over and over again to follow. And Paul really does a lot of this in many of his epistles, talks about how you're to follow the rules in these athletic conversations, uh, uh, competitions to be able to win. He goes, if you don't follow the rules, then you don't win. 
And you know, any of us who've played any kind of sports know that you know you don't you don't play baseball and go from from uh, home plate to first base back to home plate to get to get a home run. You know, you eventually get back, but you've got to go through second, third. <laughs> And home base, and you don't go. You can't go to first, and then go to third, and then come home. You can't skip second base. You, you, you've got to go all the way around, <laughs> touching every one of the bases, <laughs> to be able to say, "I hit." You know, I got the home run. And you know, you can't hit the, hit the ball over the fence and say, "I'm not going around the bases. I got the home run. I don't have to go around the bases." You'll be when they do get a ball, they'll touch first base, and you're out. <laughs> You know, so you know, we, we need to be able to look at this and say, I've followed the, path, the race set before me. I have gone where God has said to go. He goes, how do we do this? He goes, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So this is very interesting, looking with our eyes fixed on him. Looking at Jesus, who is the author, the one who takes the lead. All right, he's the beginning, the one who takes the lead, and the finisher. Jesus has started our faith, and he finished the faith. And he is our example. We are to look to him and follow his example. He was faithful, as we're going to find out, all the way to the cross, all the way to, to all the hardships that he went. He started the trip, and he finished it. One of my greatest desires is to finish well with God. I do not want to run the race and then fall flat on my face and not finish the race. Or worse yet, follow the race and then at the last turn decide to go to the right instead of to the left. <laughs> and go, I'm still racing. <laughs> I'm, you know, I don't know where everybody else went, but I'm still running. <laughs> totally the wrong way, but I'm still running. I want to finish the race well. And that is my goal, because I have seen so many people over the years run strong, run strong, run strong, and then all of a sudden something goes wrong, and they fall away and just quit, quit following God, quit serving God. And they'll have their reasons, don't get me wrong, they'll have reasons that even sound legitimate. But what is the true thing about this is, are we going to finish the race? It is so easy for us to find reasons not to serve. Well, you know, you know, this, that, and the other thing. My family died. Uh, this happened. That happened. I lost my job, and now I'm trying to suffer. I'm working five jobs just to make ends meet, uh, and all these different things that you can come up with. My health is deteriorated, and now I can't do anything. Well, there's something we can do. You know, something. I don't know what it is, but are you still serving God in that capacity? that you are doing. You know, we've shared with you Annie Bauer, which you know, some of you know or don't know or remember. She's found a new ministry. Every tele, everybody who gives her a telecall, you know, telephone call for trying to sell her something, after she listens to them, she makes them listen to her. Tell them about, tell them about the gospel. I think she's getting less and less calls. <laughs> you know, but it's been an interesting ministry that she's had to give the gospel to these people that are calling her, bugging her to buy things, so she tells them about Jesus. What do we do? How, you know, this is very interesting when I say something like this because it is, what is God asking you to do? How are you going to minister? And sometimes some of the things he will give you are very interesting ministries. I think I've shared with you, back east we, we had, they were encouraging people to start ministry, so this guy decided he was going to make a Bible study at the airport. Everybody laughed at him. Like, how, what kind of Bible study are you going to have at the airport? And then until he started coming back and talking about all the people that got saved at his Bible study at the airport. You know, travelers, workers, you know, he was having all kinds of people. He had a core of workers there that came every, every week, but there would be travelers coming through, going to this Bible study, getting saved on their way to their airplane. And, you know, everybody laughed at him. You know, you want to you have a Bible study where? <laughs> you know, how, how come you would want to have a Bible study there? But that was where he was absolutely convinced that God had told him to boo, do his Bible study and came back with great reports. So what is God asking you to do? If it sounds really crazy, make sure first off that it is God. But if it's really crazy, then 
and, and you really think it's God saying, go ahead and do it. You never know what it is that God has in store for you. Because I can tell you, when, when you had somebody like George Mueller who says, I'm going to start an orphanage and I'm not going to take collections from anybody, I'm just going to pray when we need things. And everybody's laughing at him. Number one, the idea that he wanted to build an orphanage. And then number two, that he had no financial backing to do it. And all he did was pray every time he needed something. And God met the needs of those orphans every single day. And sometimes in miraculous ways. The greatest story that I remember about him is it's breakfast time, all the children are at the table, and they're praying thank you for the food that there is no food in the orphanage for. No food in the orphanage, and he's thanking God for the food that the children are going to get ready to eat. And a knock on the door in the middle of his prayer says, you know, Baker comes in and said, you know, God just impressed on me to make these extra breads, and he said to bring them to you and brought enough bread. While he's bringing the bread in, this guy comes in and goes, you know, hey, my wagon just broke down outside and I've got to dump the milk down. And he goes, I figured the kids could use it rather than just dumping it out in the street. Now, not the greatest breakfast in the world, you know, bread, you know hot bread and, and, and fresh milk, but breakfast provided to them because he had faith enough just to trust God to say, thank you for what you're going to provide. We need to learn to walk in faith and trust God, even when nothing looks like it's going to make sense. And here he's talking about this. We run with patience. He says, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And look at this. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Jesus was not looking at the cross. He was not looking at the pain that he was going to endure on the cross and before the cross. He was not looking at three days in the, in the tomb. He was looking beyond to the reward of obedience, which was to sit down at the right hand of the Father at the throne of heaven. And we've talked about this. The right hand for the Hebrews people, and even for us to this day, is the site of approval. You sit on the right-hand side of somebody. That is, you're the number one person. You're the, you're the approved person. We still have the statement, this is my right-hand person, or you know, my girl Friday, or whatever, you know, those type of terms. This is the person I need to get everything done. This is the one I turn to. Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. He has fulfilled his mission. He's approved of the Father, and he's sitting there at the throne, at the right-hand side of the throne, waiting for the fulfillment of the, of the kingdom. And his whole purpose as he was going through the life was not to pay attention. Can you imagine how depressing his life could have been if he was looking at, at it from anything other than the future glory? I'm God and I'm this little baby and can't do anything. I'm God and I'm subject to Mary and Joseph as my parents and you know, I'm, I'm the God of the universe. How could I be subject to these insignificant human beings? I'm God, and, I, and all these guys are giving me hard times and, and questioning me and, and wondering about my authority. I'm God, and these guys are beating me with whips and, and, and fists, and they're going to put me on a cross. If he had not been looking at the final glory that was coming... I think everybody would have been dead because he had the power to do it and had the option to do it. I mean, there was no reason why he couldn't have done it. They've abused God himself. But he was looking to the glory that was coming. For us, are our eyes and our attention focused on the glory to follow this life? Huh? It's going to get here quicker than we expect, but... I understand that because sometimes I do the same thing. God, you know, this is just so hard. You know, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. You know, this, you know, we, we don't have this. We don't have that. You know, I'm not seeing any great moves going on. God, what is going on? And I've been there oftentimes, even recently. You know, God, what is just going on? You know, things are fall, seem to be falling apart because of the trials and temptations and, and the hardships that people are going through. 
And it's hard sometimes just to say, God, looking forward to the glory. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest and, 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 and follow you, God. And it is hard. It is not easy to do this. Now, it was easy for Jesus because he knew everything and he knew what was coming. It's a lot harder for us. But the one thing we are promised is there's a heaven. And heaven's going to be perfect. And in heaven, we're going to receive the rewards for what we have accomplished for God in this life. Whether we don't think, even though we think we've done nothing. We're going to find out when we get to heaven that if we have purposely served God, there's going to be a lot more rewards than we are even aware of. And we get glimpses of it every once in a while in this lifetime. Where somebody says, I watched you and I saw you, I saw how you worked and it turned my life around or it encouraged me to step forward. And all these little things where somebody will just say, just a little thing for us to grab hold of. And God knows that we need those every once in a while. But the good news is when we get to heaven, everything will be perfect and we will be rewarded and it will be glory. Even if we got no rewards, heaven is still a great, great reward. Now, I think everybody's going to have something if they've served God at all. There's going to be something that people have seen in their life. And sometimes we share the gospel and we get rejected and we go, well, that was a waste of time. Uh, no, it really wasn't because you planted a seed or you watered a seed. You may not know it. But even for each one of us, how many times, if you think back over your life, how many people planted a seed, talked to you about Jesus, maybe you rebuffed them real quick and you don't think anything really happened, but it stuck in your brain that it was there. That it was somebody had said something. Somebody had done something. You looked, you looked at this crazy Christian and just like, how could they live the way they're living? You know, they're, they're, so, they're so weird. You know, that weirdness sometimes is a good witness. <laughs> you know, but we think about that. How many people have impressed you over the years without you ever really realizing it? And you might have, you might have, they might have impressed you just enough that you think that they were crazy and strange, which they are by the, human, by the world standards. We as Christians are crazy and weird by the world standards. We don't treat people the way they deserve if we're following God correctly. We have joy in what's going on. We, we praise God. We, we try to walk in the presence of God. We don't always do it perfectly. But people look at us and say, you guys are strange. How can you, how can you be even smiling when all this stuff is going? How come you're not drunk all the time trying to forget it, forget what's going on? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't live if I wasn't drunk or, or stoned, you know, and you're, you're going through all of this without, without that, hopefully. <laughs> but those make impressions on people. Yes, they think you're crazy. Yes, they think you're weird, but they remember. They remember those individuals and it strikes them, especially if you've told them you're a Christian. And they're going, well, they said it was because of God that they're that way, but I really don't believe in God or anything, but it sticks in their brain and it's been in there. It's implanted. So don't get to the place where you think God is just worthless following you. Share the gospel. Lay the seeds out. Put them out there and let people, if they think you're crazy, good. At least they'll remember you. You're the crazy person that told me about God. And when they get to heaven, if they get saved and they get to heaven, they're going to remember your little seed that you planted, even though you may not think it's much. And we don't understand oftentimes what's going on because God will lead us to do strange things sometimes, and that's exactly what the person needs to hear. There's been times when I've said something to somebody, and I'm going, I don't know why I'm saying this, and they look at me and going, how did you know to say that to me? I'm going, what do you mean? They go, well, I asked God for somebody to say just, that, just those words to me. And it had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> And, well, I'm just listening to God. And then they would be responsive, responsive to what was going on. May not get saved, but be more responsive. You never know what it is that you're doing or saying that is going to touch somebody. Because God is in charge. He's laid out your path. He's laid out your, your race. He's put you in front of somebody that is just the one for you to be able to talk to. Now, if you refuse to talk to somebody and you were the one that should have, God will put somebody else in the path to make sure that they get the message. But there was certain messages that would have been better from you. You, had, you would have said it just the right way or a better way, but God will make sure that somebody comes in to give them the message. Because he knows that you're the right one. If you reject him, he's got another, another servant coming in behind to, to fulfill the job anyway.
That doesn't excuse us. Matter of fact, it even makes it more, more hard on us because we were supposed to have done it and God says, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you be obedient? And when we go to the beam of seed of Christ, there's going to be this, when we look at this and we say, we're going to be happy with the rewards we get, but we're going to look at how much gets burnt up and say, wow, that was a lot of stuff that went into the fire and only, you know, he put a truckload of stuff in the fire and out came a handful of, of good stuff. And I hope I don't have a truckload of stuff going in and only a handful of stuff coming out, but I think most of us will have more going in than comes back out. And we're going to look at it and say, wow, how much of my life did I waste? And then he's going to take the tears from our eyes so that we'll be happy with what we have. But, you know, it, it will be a situation where we look and say, all of us will say, how much time did I waste on this world? How much time did I spend doing everything but serving God? And I, you know, sometimes I feel like that when I'm working 40 hours a week at this other job, and, you know, and I do get opportunities to share, share with people, not as much as I would like. And sometimes I feel like I'm wasting 40 hours a week <laughs> to earn a living. And I know that I need it. I need to pay my bills and all of that. But it's, you know, it's hard sometimes to be able to say, how much life is wasted? And what do we do with the time that we're not working? What do we do with the time we're not in church? Are we actively doing anything for God or are we just kind of wasting our time away? And this is all very critical of what are we doing? It says that Jesus endured the, uh, the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Literally, he did not flee from the cross. Uh, very, we're all very glad that Jesus did not flee from the cross. Paul, when you look at Paul's life, he did not flee from all the activities that happened to him. He endured hardship. And he did it joyfully in, in, from what it sounds in many of these cases. Uh, he said, and in some cases I think he was trying to make penance because he had devastated the church before he got saved. And he probably said, well, I deserve anything that comes my way, so God, just lay it on me. <laughs> and he was basically just going forward, but he was still did not turn from what God had incurred, uh, given to him. When you look at the life of Job, God said he's a perfect man, an upright man who hates evil. King James says eschews evil, which means to despise or hate. He hates evil. And he did not curse God, at least until his friends got, got on his case over a long period of time. You know, and I love it at one point, I was just reading it the other day. He goes, you guys are terrible counselors. He goes, you, you came here to tell me, you know, to help me, and, you, and all you do is criticize me. He goes, I would never have done this to any of you. Whether it was right or wrong, you know, even if it was right, I would never have criticized you when you're down. And... Our job is so important. Do we come before people and encourage them? Because it is easy to, to attack people. <laughs> I can make this person really feel bad, and I'm going to look good when they, because I'm going to tell them about how good I am and how bad they are. And there's nothing good about that. It's nothing but pride. Our job is to encourage those that are down and saying, you know, hey, God loves you. God cares for you. One of the greatest things that we can say to somebody is, God loves you. Now, this does not mean we do not tell them that God loves you and it doesn't matter what you're doing. It is true that God loves them no matter what they're doing, but it does matter to their life that they're sinning. But our whole goal is God loves you in spite of your sin. Jesus died for you so that your sins could be paid, so that you could come into Christ and live a better life through him. And we really work on it that way. Our job is not to criticize other people. Uh, I was doing a question and answer time one time, and somebody goes, well, how do you share with somebody that's a homosexual that it's a sin? And my answer was, what does it matter? Go to something that they know is a sin. You know, yes, homosexuality is a sin. Are you going to convince the homosexual that they're sinning? No. But you can convince them that they've told lies, that they've coveted, that they've been angry without cause at somebody, 
might even be able to get into the idea of fornication because they are committing fornication. So there's other places we can get them to admit that they're a sinner. You get them saved and then the Holy Spirit comes in and works on them on their sin that they're not admitting. And if you don't want to believe that, how many sins in your life have you learned that were sins after, you know, after years of not knowing that they were a sin? And then all of a sudden you're reading the Bible and realize, uh, whoops, uh, I've got a sin in my life. Didn't think it was a sin, didn't know that it was a sin. And you find out as you're reading it that God says, you've got, a, you've got an issue here. Our job in evangelism is not to go out and convince people that whatever, they're, whatever our chosen activity to pick on is a sin. All we do is give the gospel message. We are all sinners. And it's not hard to find something that somebody's going to admit that they're a sinner on. Don't pick the thing that's going to be hard for them to accept. Uh, and, but pick something that is going to be something that they can get in. And the Holy Spirit comes into them. The Holy Spirit will then will convict them of their sin when the time is right. And be able to convict, you know, to work with them. And Jesus went to the cross knowing that we were his enemies. Mankind was the enemy of God. And Jesus went to the cross for his enemies to pay for the sins of the world and he endured that because he was going to be the great honor of sitting at the father's right hand after that and so we see this and then it says for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest you be weary and faint in your minds in other words he's saying look to Jesus Jesus as we consider him, again, he did not flee from it. And it says that he endured the contradiction of sinners. Jesus kept getting attacked over and over, mostly by those who thought they were righteous. He got attacked by the scribes and Pharisees. He, when he was in uh, Nazareth and uh, uh, Capernaum, and he said, this day, this, is a, this, this scripture has been fulfilled. And they, they started pushing him to the cliff to throw him over the cliff. And it says he walked through their midst. But they were ready to kill him because they were contrary to his message. And he endured that. For four years, he endured the attack after attack after attack. And he loved the sinners and showed them God's mercy. Now, he was pretty hard back in return for the self-righteous. Our goal is to realize that we're sinners and not be self-righteous. And the problem that happens many times when we, the longer we're with God, the more we, we start getting into self-righteousness. Well, I don't have those problems. How can I, how can I be hanging out with those people? They're, they're bad. They're doing all the things that I used to do. And they don't recognize that it's sin. I can't get around them. And it might be good not to be around some of the people that are doing some of the things that you have done in the past. All right? If you've been an alcoholic, you probably don't want to hang around with the people drinking in the bar. The temptation would be too great. Uh, if you've been into drugs, drugs, you probably don't want to be at the drug, drug house you know, trying to witness to them. <laughs> All right? And we've seen this happen time after time. Well, I'm going to the bar to witness. And you get away with it for a little while until one day you're just in the right, you know, the wrong mood <laughs> and everything looks good and you go, well, maybe just one. Be careful. I mean, so don't reject them, but don't, don't put yourself in a place where you're going to fall into a problem area. Well, I've been having problems with pornography, but I'm going to go witness to the guys at the X-rated movie theater. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, uh, probably not the thing to do. All right, um, great idea, maybe, but dumb. <laughs> so we, we want to be careful about how we, how we do witnesses, but not to reject them and put them you know, as if they're worthless. And this is a fine line. We talked about this in Sunday school. A fine line between saying God calls something sin and being judgmental. And the world doesn't make that distinction like we do. <laughs> You know, because they really have everything is all tied together. You are what you do. And God, we recognize from God that God created you in his image and you're doing things that are wrong. 
and I want to bring you to the image of God and get rid of the things that are, that are you doing wrong without judging you. And it's a hard thing to do. And the world doesn't take it that way. You know, they, they go, well, you're judging me. You're criticizing me. And over and over we, we see that, you know, God, I've said it in our church. I'm willing to have anybody in our church, period. But when I say that homosexuality is a sin, adultery is a sin, fornication is a sin, people get, ing- get angry. You're judging me. You're not wanting us here. Well, I never said that you're not here. I just said this is a sin. And we need to understand people are going to reject the message. But what are they really rejecting? They're not necessarily rejecting you. They're rejecting God behind the message. And anytime you touch something that is somebody's sin, it hurts. <laughs> because their conscience is already bothering them. Even if they have seared their conscience, it's still there pricking up every once in a while saying, you're not doing what's right. You're not doing what's right. The alcoholic, the, the, the person who's addicted to drugs knows that it's not right. They don't usually like their life. They know that there's a better way. And then when they get somebody that says that alcoholism and, and drug addiction and you know, sexual you know, promiscuity are all wrong, then it hits that conscience that has been bothering them and they're going, you're judging me. And they attack you back hard. And when, you, when somebody attacks you hard, just recognize the one fact. You just touch something that they're very sensitive about. You've touched an area that they are struggling with, that God is working with. And what ends up happening, if you've ever tried to help an animal that's hurt, you know, might be the most loving animal in the world, but if it's hurt, it's going to try to defend itself rather than let you touch, touch it. Nice, you know, your nice family pet dog who's you know, got a broken paw or something usually will strike out even at the family because it's in pain. This happens with people. When you say something that God is saying and you touch that area of conviction in their life, they strike out. And unfortunately, you get to be the target because you're the one that <laughs> touched that area. And all of this comes down to, you know, Jesus took these contradictions and he says, consider what Jesus did. Why? So that you, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. I'm giving up. I'm tired of it. I don't want it anymore. And what is he saying? Look to what Jesus did. Jesus went to the cross. And he says, and that's what his next verse says. Uh, oops, I haven't got that far yet. Yeah. Uh, verse 4. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. In other words, you haven't died. All right? You're, you're working against sin. You're trying to get your life together. He goes, think about Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went to the cross to die. Every point up to that. Jesus at any point could have said, Father, these people are not worth it. This world is not worth it. Look what they're doing to us. How they're abusing us. I just want to come home. Forget about them. We'll just let them all go to hell and and I'm just coming home. He has so much patience. He had so much love. But he also was looking at the future. All the people that would come to him because of what he did. We need, and this is what he's saying. Are we putting our trust into God? Is he saying that we haven't, we've resisted him but not until our death? Or we've resisted sin? We have not resisted unto blood. In other words, we have gone so far, Jesus went to die. Now, he's talking to living people, obviously, because the martyrs had already (laughs) died for what they believed. So he's basically saying, I'm writing to you, and you have not resisted to the the point of death yet. Resisted what? Huh? Resisted what? God? You have not resisted the, again, what we're looking at here is the despising of what he's calling you to do. I haven't, I haven't resisted technically sin, 
But he's saying you're on a path, you're on your race. You have not resisted to go forward all the way to death. Um, he goes, you're going to be tempted all the way until the time you're dead to, to not follow. And death is that final, that, final, that final point where we finally get released from all the struggles, all the temptations. And here he's saying, and the context of this is where he's asking you to follow God and go through all the trials. And he goes, when you feel weak, when you feel, feel like everything is going against you, look to Jesus, who did have everything going against him. Now, he went to the cross, knowing that he was going to go to the cross. For four years, he's teaching the disciples, I'm going to go die for you, I'm going to die for you, and I'm coming back in three, you know, three days to, in, in power and resurrection. And he knew all of this time. He knew that as he was being in the Garden of Gethsemane, being arrested. Now, it's kind of interesting. When you really read the Garden of Gethsemane and see what Jesus did, he was never the victim. He, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. I'm he. And the apostles, the, the disciples, apostles were not arrested at that time. And I believe Jesus probably said, let them go. I'm the one you want. He's the only one that was taken. He stands before Pilate, and Pilate goes, well, don't you know that I have the power of life and death? And what's his answer? You would have no power over me unless it was given to you. In other words, Pilate, if I just wanted to unthink you, you'd be, you'd be gone. It doesn't matter. You don't have any power that God has not allowed you to have. Every step of the way, Jesus was in charge of what was going on. Now, it looked like others were. But at any time, he could have said, enough is enough. And I, and I really do have this picture because one of the songs I love is he could have called 10,000 angels. I can picture the angels in heaven all standing around, looking at the Father saying, when are you going to let us go? How can you let those insignificant human beings do this to you? And you're making us stand here and not protect him or protect you, and you're standing here waiting, waiting for the command to go, watching him be beat, watching him be tortured, watching him be nailed to a cross, and not being able to go out and, and rescue him, and not understanding anything about what was going on, and going, what is going on? How could this be happening? And Jesus went to the cross knowing that at any point, all he had to do was say, I'm through. I don't want to do this anymore. They're not worth it. And been able to go home. Back to heaven. And yet he endured all of that. Now, none of us are ever going to endure what Jesus went through in our lifetime or even up to our death. God at the cross, when he, Jesus became sin, turned his back on his son. Now, I've talked many times. The greatest pain that Jesus went through was not the scourging, was not the beating, was not the suffocation on the cross. So when the father turned his back on him and could not have fellowship with him, and they had never been out of fellowship for all of eternity until that point. That was his pain. It was also the father's pain. The father got hurt by having to turn away from Jesus. I think what was the hard part, too, is he knew everything that was going to happen to him before it happened. Yeah. He already knew all of this stuff. And that is, That's it's one of the amazing things that he knew that what was going to happen. The father knew what was going to happen, and yet they did it. And they created us in the first place. And look at us. We're a mess. Yeah, and, they cre and he created us in the first place, knowing that all of this was going to go on. And we are to look and say, our gaze needs to be on Jesus. When we think that we have got too much happening to us, we look to Jesus and say, oh, nothing's happened to me yet, in comparison. And this is the whole purpose. Look at what Jesus went through for us. Now, granted, Jesus was God. He had it a lot easier. He had no sin. But he is our example. He went through all of this so that we could look at him and say, 
He was also man. If he could do it, he's given us the power to get, get through it all. And this is, you know, and until we die, he's going to give us that power to get through. And when we die, he's given us the power to go through death and enter into his presence. And this is the good news. He's always with us. And then we get to heaven, he'll always be with us there too. So we look at him and say, what is in store for me? Heaven. This is what's in store for me because I am his child and no matter what I go through in this lifetime, he's going to give me the power and the strength and the ability to go through it and be rewarded in heaven with him. And, you know, we look at this and it goes, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked. Now, this is something that is very hard for us to understand. God says, despise not chastening. And it very interestingly is that, you know, chastening, literally here the word for chastening means the whole training of a child. The whole training of the child. Everything that we do in our discipline of our children is hopefully to get them to the goal of being a good citizen of this, of this world, of the, being a good member of the family that doesn't bring disgrace to the family. God's discipline of us as his children are to get us to the place where we are a good representative of the family of God without bringing disgrace. And all of this comes down to true discipline is to get you to not repeat the same activity again. All right. Uh, first, I teach you not to do something. Then when you don't do something, you get punished. And that's what God says. I'm teaching you what you're going to do. And then if you go ahead and do it, I'm going to chasten you. And there's you know, this kind of interesting word because in the next verse, it's going to say that he scourges us, which literally means to whip. All right. His discipline is pretty harsh. If we don't listen to him, his discipline will be whatever it takes to get our attention. True discipline has to be hard enough that we feel the pain of it and not want to repeat it. Now, all of us have probably had more than one kid in our lifetime, and each, each kid uh, is going to be different in the way they're disciplined. I had one kid, all you had to do was barely look at him hard, and he'd, he'd, he'd break down, literally. I had two others that were pretty stubborn. And you basically had to beat the daylights out of them to get their attention. What a diff now, what if I had treated my one that was very soft and tender that way? That one would have been broken. The other ones, it didn't matter how, what you said, what you did, you, you really had to come down with some hard discipline for them to be disciplined. And God knows, what does it take to get your attention? Are you that soft, tender person that all he's got to do is speak a, speak a word to you and you respond? Or are you the one that he has to bring out the whip and tie you to the tie you to the post and, and, and beat you to death. <laughs> and sometimes we're a little bit of each, depending on where our sin is that he's trying to deal with. And this is what he's saying. He goes, you're a child. God is going to discipline you. And he says, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you're rebuked. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Why does he do it? Because he loves us. Now, this is hard sometimes for people, you know, especially if you think back when you were a kid, you're going, Mom and Dad don't love me. They don't let me do anything that anybody else does. Well, no, it's because they love you that they're trying to keep you from all the trouble that you are wanting to get into. They know where that trouble leads to in the long run, sometimes because they had been there. <laughs> They had already been there, and they know where, where the dead end is, and they don't want you going down that same path. So they discipline you. Have you ever thought what it would be like if you had no discipline in your life? Most of us would be dead. You know, if we really think about it, we'd probably be dead because we'd have done everything we wanted to do. Uh, and most of what we wanted to do would be a dead-end path. And... You know, and God says, I am going to discipline you to keep you off the wrong path. 
And he goes, I'm going to discipline you. They give you all of that. I'm going to mold your character, literally, in this one, when it says chasten here. He's going to mold our character by reproof and admonition. And then literally when he says scourging, it is whipping. <laughs> Brings us to the whipping post. Whatever it takes. He'll start with admonition and words, and then he'll take us out back in the woodshed and, and beat us. <laughs> if that's what you need to, need to have happen. And so all of this goes on because uh, in, let's see, verse uh, 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with a son. For what son is he whom is not chastened? In other words, if you're really his son, he's going to chasten you. So if you're not experiencing any chastening of God, you're not one of his children. And that's exactly what the next one says. But if you be without chastening, whereof all are partakers, in other words, you're all going to be chastened. <laughs> he goes, but if you are not, then you are bastards or illegitimate. You're not one of his children. I know that's a hard word, but it is the right word in this particular case. Uh, you know, and you are not sons. God will discipline his children and put them into where they belong to be able to be corrected. And if you're not being corrected, God does not correct his children that aren't, you know, people that aren't his children. And that's good because you don't want children, people correcting your children. You know, and, and my children were growing up, I didn't want others disciplining them. Now, putting them in their place might be one thing, but no discipline, no spankings, no you're in the corner, you know, you know nothing, nothing for discipline. That was my job as their father. And God says, my children, I discipline. If they're not my children, they're not my children, I'm not disciplining them. And he then lets us reap what we sow at that point in time, but he's not disciplining. God says, you're my child and you're sinning. I'm going to correct you. And we've all been there where we've going, all right, God, I've had enough, I think. And God says, well, maybe not. You know, if it, you, know you haven't had enough yet. You may, you may feel like you're having enough, but you're not ready to not do it again. And this is the key to it. Discipline always has to be hurting enough that you never want to repeat it. And that's a very hard thing for us. When we go through the God's discipline and we're going, okay, God, I've had enough. Uh-uh, not yet. Uh, I want to make sure that you never do it again. And then some of us are stubborn and keep doing it again and again and again and need more discipline. But he says, I'm going to make sure that you're going to be because I love you. I love you so much, I don't want to see you go through the consequence of these sins over and over again. And this is the key to it. It's his love that brings discipline. And when I've talked to people about disciplining, you know, God definitely encourages the corporal punishment and he uses corporal punishment on us. And I've told people, if you don't have pain in giving out the corporal punishment, then you, don't, you shouldn't be giving corporal punishment. God is not laughing as he punishes us. He's saying, I love you so much, I must do this. You know, and when I was a kid, my dad used the same ter term that I used on my kids, you know, getting ready for the spanking, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I remember as a kid thinking, yeah, right, I'm the one that's not going to be able to sit down when you get done, how are you being hurt? Then came the time when I had to give one of my kids a spanking for the first time. And it's like, I don't want to do this. But I know that they need this to happen. And used the same term my dad did, and I know they thought the same thing. You know, right, I'm not, you know, you know this, how, how are you being hurt by this? But if you are not hurt by, giving, by having to give that discipline, you might have to think twice about giving a discipline. Because it should hurt you to cause pain to somebody or something that you love. And God is saying, I love you. And it's not my pleasure to do this to you. It's because I love you and don't want to see you do it again. And he says, you are my child. If you want my child, I wouldn't care what you did. You know, oh, yeah, that kid over there, he's a crazy nut. Stay away from the kids. You know, that, you know, I don't want to be with that guy. You know, but it's not my child to, to stop and discipline. 
Now, I may tell you, you know, if it's against the law, that'd be a different story. You can call the police and everything, but, but my job is not to discipline that child and correct that child to, to a great degree because they're not my child. They're not one that I'm responsible for. And Jesus says, I, or God says, I will discipline my children and, and go forward with them. And we're going to stop here. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, help us to learn to endure discipline. Help us to always keep focused on the future of heaven and the reward of obedience. Help us to finish the race strong and to be obedient. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.